You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to Abigailia Shaman, a fabulous act currently resident in the UK, uh, but from America. And uh, we're going to talk about a wide variety of stuff, including the uh, the transatlantic differences, of course, which always come up uh, when I badger an American guest about how different, uh, how different things are over here. Uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, sexy stuff in her act and how that changes from when you're single to when you're in a relationship. That's a kind of fascinating angle. And uh, and also all manner of other things besides. Um, I don't have anything to advertise. Imagine that. I don't have a, I don't have a little pre blurb. I'm going to read out a couple of emails in the the middle of this uh, this episode, uh, and then there's some other bits and bobs that I'm saving up because we've had some quite exciting news recently. Listen on. This is the brilliant Abigailia Shaman. It's pronounced. How's it pronounced? Abigailia Shaman. Shaman, yeah, you Shaman, did. Shaman, yeah. yeah and you and said you're saying Shaman, but that's just your accent. Yeah, yeah, you so, did it right. Okay, I'll, I did it I'll right. I'll accept that. I like you pause like, please say it for me. <laughs> nope, nope. I thought that was one of my favorite titles ever. Oh, thank Abigailia you. Abigailia Shaman. It's pronounced Abigailia Shaman, but of course that is only ever seen written on posters yeah. and things. That was lovely. Um, you let's start with your name. You invented your name yourself, and I. Whenever I want, whenever I see you casually at a gig, I want to go. Oh, hi, Abby. And I know you've got material about not wanting people to do that. Right. So tell me about the decision to create your own name. Okay. From First of all, I didn't create it, um, but I kept it. So I used to go to summer camp when I was a kid. I, I went to like a nature camp where it taught you how to like, you'd go camping outdoors and make a dream catcher and learn how to recycle. Like I went to that kind of camp as a kid before being green was cool. You know, my parents were ahead of their time. And there was a, a camp counselor there uh, who was in charge of my cabin who gave us all nicknames. And this was when I was like 10. And, uh, and I, and she, just to be silly for the summer, she did that. And by the next year, I decided I wanted that to be my name. Okay. So I kept it. And when I, the way my schooling uh, worked is you went through uh, kindergarten through fifth grade at one school. Then all the sixth graders met together at another school. And then junior high, seventh and eighth grade was at a different school. So from sixth to seventh grade, because I changed buildings, I figured that's a good time to change names because none of the teachers would know. Yeah, okay. And um, and so I switched it to Abigailia. And the reason why I'm still so... If someone calls me Abby, I'm never, I'm never not answer them. People do it. But the reason why I'm like, no, it's Abigailia is because no one will call you Abigailia unless you insist on it. Okay. 
like it's it's just a, a long complicated name but um i'm not as pr- the only time i get really precious about it is when i tell people my name's abigaliah and they're like can i call you abby and i'm like i prefer abigaliah actually and they're like yeah i'm not gonna do that and then i'm like no you're an asshole but aren't you can by contriving a name with multiple syllables in it and not letting people shorten it why are they the asshole Ooh, good question. Uh, I think like you're making like that's quite a big social kind of. Uh, I think it's disrespectful to not call someone by the name they want to be called. Okay. Like uh, I, w- you know, growing up, uh, I would never call my choir teacher Michelle. Her name is Miss Smith, and it's Miss Smith. It's not Mrs. Smith. It's Miss Smith. You know, like you just. I think it's a. You call people what they want to be called. I have no problem calling burlesque girls by their burlesque names, which I have one friend who thinks that's stupid. But in New York, they only go by their burlesque names. They're not like, I'm Gypsy on stage and I'm Michelle off stage. They're always by their burlesque name. Okay. So it's about identity for you. Like this similar kind of, um, similar to a burlesque act. I'm wondering if there's, if your name is kind of part of a a persona that you've created. You're quite a self-creating woman. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but also I I didn't change it because, I mean, I think I did. I was 11 when I changed it, so I'm not going to be like, no, it wasn't about being different. I was 11. It was about being different and wanting to stand out and creating your own identity, I'm sure, but I didn't do it for show-busy reasons Mm -hmm. because I was 11, and now I'm 30, so it's been my name for longer than it hasn't been my name. Yes, but, I mean, like, it is uniquely Googleable, right? Yeah. And that's not just luck. Like, you as an adult chose the name you were called when you were 11. I just kept being called it, though. Oh, throughout, from 11 onwards? Yeah, I've never not been... Since I was 11, I've always been Abigailia. Okay. So, um, and through college, I was Abigailia. Um, some people don't know it's not my real name. So now it's gotten to a point where I lie a lot because it's just easier to be like, oh, I had hippie parents. I didn't. They were Republicans. But um, um, yeah, some or, and some people just assume that it's my real name and I never correct them. I never had it legally changed. And I don't think I will now because with the amount of travel I do internationally, mm-hmm. I think it might send up a red flag going yeah. through borders. I yeah. don't know if it will or not, but I think a, a f- name change will make things difficult. So on all official documents, that's usually when people find out it's not my real name. Okay. And here's another thing. You're saying that uh, uh, it's um, people change their names all the time. I just made my name more complicated, so people think I'm a bit of a douchebag. But <laughs> but like, there's so many people who have who do it because uh, for industry reasons. Where I yeah. didn't do it for industry reasons. Uh-huh. So um, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who doesn't use their real name. I can think of one, but I don't think a lot of people know that, so I don't want to give it out. But but yeah, people get so weird about it where there's so many people who are like, oh, my real last name's Kurzinski. But I, yeah, there, there's a comic in New York named Robert, ne- Robert Dean mm-hmm. and his real name is Robert 
I think it's Krasinski. It might not be mm. Krasinski. I think Louis C.K. Like C.K. Yeah, that's is an another thing. Right? Yeah, I I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a perfect example of like that's clearly not his real last name. Whereas everyone's fine with that. But well, it's faster to say. It's faster to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think also being a white girl from Middle America, people just can't comprehend why I have such a complicated name. Let's talk about the white girl from Middle America because I am I I, I uh, used to date a girl who, when she went to college, changed her name and she did one of those. I've always been fascinated by that. The kind of the presence of mind required to go right, everyone. I want you to call me this now because mm-hmm. like, that's absolutely you know I, I am Stuart David Goldsmith and okay. that is it. It's a very you know what I mean and particularly I think when you call a child Stuart. You're effectively saying your horizons are limited. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's, there's, there aren't many aspirational stewards out there. But so I, I feel like, oh, I'm kind of, and, and particularly given the kind of books and comic books and music I was into when I was a teenager, uh, I, part of me, I suppose, I, I would be absolutely ripe for deciding I wanted to be called something else. Yeah. But I never had the confidence as a child let alone an 11 year old yeah. to go uh, I'm putting a flag in the sand here guys is yeah. there, sorry a line in the sand or a flag in the dirt whatever it is yeah. uh, I'm, I'm going to change so who were you who was this 11 year old girl were you always that kind of jut your chin out forthright sort of kid yeah I was very um, I don't think precocious is the right word but I was very um, commanding as, as far as <laughs> like a presence, which is a weird thing to say as a, as an 11 year old, which I realize I've never said that as myself, uh, about myself before. But, um, I, I liked attention. I liked, um, you know, I did a lot of theater and stuff growing up. Uh, I was, I guess I was kind of the class clown. I was always kind of loud and funny, but I was also very obedient. Like I never, uh, I never got in trouble and I always did what I was told. Um, so yeah, I, it, it wasn't hard. It wasn't a hard decision for me to make as a child. Um, if I, it, it's, I've never talked at such length about this. Usually people are like, how do you get your name? And then they're disappointed when I tell them the story and then we move on. Um, but if I don't think I would have done it later in life. Like in, cause I went to acting school, not bragging. So by the end of it, a lot of kids were thinking about changing their names. Mm-hmm. And by then I was like, are you really like going to change your name now? And I can't understand changing your name for, uh, business purposes. I changed my name because, uh, that summer camp was something that I hugely identified with and was a big part of my childhood and a big part of my life. So it was just a way to bring that into my everyday life and not just the like month I was there. Um, yeah, but I wasn't super popular as a kid. I wasn't unpopular. Um, I didn't have one click I ran with through like grade school to high school. I kind of floated from group to group. Mm. Were you? How did that make you feel? Were you jealous of people that were entrenched in different social no, groups? No, no, exact opposite. Um, I, I well, it it always happened again because you have the summer break. It always kind of when I went back to school, that's when it changed. So a big change for me again because the way my schools were uh, separated. So seventh and eighth grade was in one school, 
and I kind of hung out with maybe what would be considered the more popular kids. I was their their funny, their funny silly friend they had because every group needs one. And then when I went to high school, because I was doing so much band and choir, I wound up hanging out with all the band and music nerds. And then uh, my I dropped out of band my junior year. I didn't do band, which meant that was my Friday nights because I was in marching band. Okay. So so I had to find a new group of friends because all my friends were playing at the games and I no longer did that. Okay. So then I found a new group of people to hang out with. So when you say marching band, I'm not really familiar. I know what a marching band is. Were you playing an instrument in a marching band? Yeah, I was, was a, okay. I was a percussionist. I played the quads. So those are the four drums that sit in front of you. Oh, like holster drums. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I played those. As cymbals my freshman year because that's as a freshman you kind of get hazed by playing cymbals. And then uh, and then I played quads and then and then I stopped because I just had too much on my plate and I couldn't. I have to all. say as an English person listening to like, you know, I played cymbals in my uh, freshman year and that's like being hazed. Everyone does that. I'm like, oh my God, this is like an episode of Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? These are, these are such specifically American and alien kind of terms yeah. to, a, to a British ear. Well, it's pronounced Abigail Shaman, the, the show that you like the title of so much, uh, which is available to watch on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> Um, Andrew O'Neill saw it and I didn't think about it until he pointed it out but he was like that is the most American show ever yeah, right. and I because it sh- I show pictures from my childhood yeah and he's like your school pictures are nothing like we've ever had sure the uh there's a picture of me playing softball there's no softball here like stuff like that but no playing symbols the reason why it was such a bitch was because uh, on certain songs, you would be the hi hat. Okay. So oh, wow. Okay. So <laughs> so you're not even playing it. You are the instrument. So what you do uh, uh, is you'd have to hold the cymbals together, and there were only two cymbal players. So four snare drums would gather around you and play you as play the hi hat. So it'd be like hi hi hi, you know. And with four like senior boys like banging on those, I'd literally be shaking like this. And so that so when you so you're not even playing them, you're, you're basically not being the frame. You're a mobile yeah, frame yeah. for a symbol. Okay. Yeah, I mean you would. There's there's the crashy bits too, but it was always being the hi hat that was not fun. I it's, I'm, it's really funny trying to sort of place you in the world because from that we're now sitting in a very cool flat in Camden and uh, you've got cool hair and you've got a cool yellow wall in your flat. That and, came with a flat. I didn't mean it like that. Flat. The maps, I assume, did not come with no. a flat. No. Because that, to me, is... Uh, you are a very switched on... You're very canny. The word canny comes to mind. Oh, thank you. Um, you have... I'm just going to paint the picture here. Uh, on The first one I noticed was above the TV. Above the TV, no less. Uh, you have... Uh, a map of London, like mm-hmm. not just central London, kind of London stretching quite a distance, Greenwich to probably Kew on the other side. Yeah. And then behind you on the sofa, there's a map of the British Isles. Now, yeah. tell me if I'm wrong, these might be marathon related things, but uh, I assume those are gig maps from the point of view of... Yeah, no, they're gig maps. They, they have nothing to do with the marathon. It's just so I kind of know where I am. Yeah. Uh, like, you, I can look... Not, are you putting pins in them and going, done, done, no, done? No, it's just more so when someone goes, hey, do you want to go to 
Portsmouth? And I go, yeah. And then they're like, great, we have to leave at 10 a.m. And then yeah. I'm like, oh, so I bought a map. Um, cause, I mean, you can look all this stuff up clearly on your phones, but having a whole map gives me a better idea of where I am in relation to other things in around me than okay. looking at it on a phone. On a phone, I just get... It, it's too small, so I need... Yeah, okay. I, I have okay. a world map in my bedroom. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. so you go I, from London to the on that wall to... Okay, cool. I did have them all in here, but it just looks like a school... Uh, it, it was too much to have three <laughs> maps in one room. Okay, so I want to... I want to... Um, excuse me. I want to trace the, the journey of the little girl in the marching band to mm-hmm. the, uh, the self-made woman uh, in a completely different country... Mm-hmm living in the center of town and gigging and going for it are you um no we'll get we'll get to that so tell me about your introduction to stand-up comedy how did you how did it find you um well i i didn't grow up wanting to be a stand-up although i knew what stand-up comedy was the first um stand-up i ever saw was i was spending the night at a friend's house and we watched bill cosme himself which is amazing. He's an awful person, but it is an amazing... If you can get a free copy, don't give him any of your money, <laughs> but if you can get a free copy, it's an amazing... Uh, um, I watched the DVD of that, and then when I was in high school, me and some friends went to the local comedy club, which was like an, in Dayton. It was an hour away. It was in the big city. Um, and just one night, and I saw George Carlin when I was 16. Uh, that's kind of that's what I kind of tell people is the first stand up I've ever seen, and then I never really thought about becoming a stand up. Although kind of people were like that might be your thing, until I did a uh, cabaret with someone who I thought was really funny, and her and I were like, um, "Hey, have you ever thought about doing stand up? I've always wanted to." So we went to an open mic together. And I actually, I, sh- I, th- I thought about sending it to you and then I forgot. I still have the tape of my first ever stand-up gig. Because How long I, ago was this? When was this? Uh, 2009. Okay. Because uh, I immediately put it on YouTube because I thought I was so good. And <laughs> in retrospect, uh, no one laughed once. Once. Uh, You've gone back and watched it again soon. Yeah, I haven't watched it recently, but um, um, yeah, it, it wasn't good. Uh, but, um, but I was hooked. 2009 I remember gigging with you at it would the have been... Edinburgh Festival at Comic Strip you remember Asher Trelevin's uh, burlesque slash stand yeah that was a great show that when is a great that? show I thought that 2010, was 2010 2011 God I did my first hour after being in comedy for a year that's it I remember we talked about that yeah. at the time yeah wow okay well we'll talk about that but let's we'll, we'll get to it so 2009 what was the name of the club you went to? In uh, well, it, in Dayton, I think it was the Funny Bone. Okay. Um, yeah, which I think is still there. And I, well, it's only been five or six years. I'm sure yeah. it is. <laughs> That's normally the no, sort no, of no, thing no. people say. No, no, no. That was when I was in high school. Oh, I see. I, I went, your pardon. Yeah. <laughs> um, the first place I ever performed stand up in New York was the People's Improv Theater. Okay. So yeah. So just how long? At is- an open mic. In between, I see. So, so you and your girlfriend going along and doing this thing at the Funny Bone was kind of like a. It was just a, a night out with pals. But as oh, far I see. as I'm sorry, I, yeah, sorry, I only bring that up as like seeing comedy 
through my childhood that was that was how I was exposed to it. It was like I saw a VHS of Bill Cosby. I went to live comedy once. I then went to see George Carlin with my family, uh, which is not a family show. <laughs> um, and I knew who George Carlin was. My mother had his old records. There were records. There were records in the house. And um, and then I started stand-up when I was 23 Okay. Um, in New York. Okay. And what was that first show in New York? Do you remember the other people on the bill? Do you remember the yes. quality? What's, what sticks out to you? Uh, I remember Mike Lawrence, who, by the way, if you ever go back to the States again, which you will, uh, especially he lives in New York, interview him. He's been going for a couple years longer than me, and he's a real nerd. He looks the exact same, uh, you know, bearded, comic book shirt um, all the time. And I just remember thinking that he was so fucking funny. And he is. He's he's an absolutely brilliant guy. Um, I remember him. I remember me and uh, Marissa, who doesn't do stand-up anymore, were... Marissa brought two friends. And I think we were the only two girls, four girls in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Mike. I don't remember really anyone else. The reason why I went to that one specifically was because I I did improv before. That's how, so I was familiar with the pit. It's People's Improv Theater. They call it the pit for short. I was familiar with the pit because of improv, and I knew the man who ran that open mic. So that's why I chose to go to that one. And everyone got three minutes. Three. Three. And and that's, that's a lot now. And in a New York open mic, people get two. Two minutes. Yeah. How many jokes can you tell in two minutes? You'd be surprised. That's why we're so good at comedy. Mm. No, it really makes you trim the fat because you have to get there. That's the one thing that... Mm, uh, this is gonna. There's no way to say this Speak without signing me. <laughs> I can the see problem with British comedy is you guys fucking waffle on for too long. Not everyone, clearly, but there's, there's the repeating... Of the 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 setup and the the there's too much faff early on that it's like if you just condense it it would be so much sharper, and then you guys sometimes it, I don't see it as much anymore but for a while there's a thing where everyone was pacing back and forth and someone told me that the reason why that started to happen was because of Chris Rock but everyone was slowly pacing back and forth which is a very different look than when Chris Rock does it I'm like it's so annoying to watch. Did you feel, when you were doing that show at the pit, did you feel like you had a right to be there? Yeah. Um, my name is Abigail Ashman. I have a right to be everywhere, Stu Goldsmith. Uh, yeah, I remember feeling like, oh, this is it. I finally found it. Because I went, I studied musical theater in school, and I can't really sing anymore due to whiskey and yelling. But I, and I never was a great singer. I was a good singer. I always got kind of the funny roles. And then I did improv and I was a good improviser. I wasn't a great improviser. Um, and then I found stand up and I was like, oh, this is so much better because I don't have to rehearse with an accompanist and I don't have to get six people together to do it. I can just, it's all on me whether I go and do a gig tonight or whether I stay home and be lazy. It's, it's either, it's my triumph or my fault. And I really like that about stand-up. Stand up. 
So this is Abigailia. Great to talk to her. We'll be back with her in just a moment. A couple of plugs. Uh, Barry Davidson does a podcast called Looking Back on a Life That Didn't Happen. Uh, I was uh, a guest of his, I think, before it was even a podcast. I think it was a radio show uh, some years ago at Edinburgh. And uh, it's now available as a podcast. Uh, I don't know if my episode is up there. I've not checked. I haven't done the research. But the premise is a really exciting one. Looking Back on a Life That Didn't Happen is um, he interviews you and then starts throwing you curls curveball improv interview questions you know so tell us about this bank robbery and you go oh you know and you sort of try and stay in the same uh, character in my case my insipid self and you uh, you try to improvise around them and then you can make stuff up and he makes stuff up and it's uh, all sorts of nonsense so that was great fun to do i'm sure it'd be great fun to listen to it's looking back on a life that didn't happen and you can find that wherever you find your podcasts i've got a, a lovely little thing that i will tell you this is this is a, a feather in the comedians comedian podcast cap um, but first Thank you for everyone that is sending in your recurring payments, everyone that's subscribing to support the show in a meaningful and recurring way. You can do that with, uh, I don't think you can choose your own one. I think you can do one, two, and even five pounds. And very occasionally there comes a champion who does ten pounds. Um, so thank you to everyone that is, uh, I, I sort of email everyone back when they first set up the payments. But thank you to those of you who are continuing to support the show. Uh, and thanks for your one-off donations as well. These are very important to me. You can go to comedianscomedian.com and support this show and remember if you don't have any cash or you don't want to pay that's fine it's here it's free for everyone although i should say given how many comedians listen to it only roughly 11 of you have ever donated i mean we're 165 eps in now maybe it's time to pull your fingers out who knows but um uh, if you'd like to support it, you can. And if you don't wish to or are unable to support it financially, remember you can go onto iTunes and leave me an honest review, but you might as well tag five stars on it. I mean, make it honest, but put five stars on. Because five stars sort of says, hey, hey, the listener, uh, hey, a prospective listener to this podcast, look at this review. Five stars, I think, is the way of getting your review noticed. So please be scathingly honest. But why not just chuck five stars on it? <laughs> that's that's useful in kind of al algorithmic machinational ways of which we cannot speculate. Um, and of course, share it with a friend. Grab someone's uh, music playing device. Grab someone's smart device uh, and find a podcast app on it and subscribe to this show. And that's the way we can help spread it all around the world. And the uh, the many heads of the Concom Hydra can continue to destroy the shield of the blank page tortured enough for you. Basically, I really want to see Captain America Civil War, but I'm going to be at, at the Secret Welsh Festival. I nearly named it. I nearly named it. But uh, no, I shall be instead enjoying a weekend of absolutely fabulous boutique comedy, which is growing unwieldy and out of control. Listen to the Radio 4. Uh, there was a, a Radio 4 programme that Ellis James made about the Secret Welsh Festival. I'm, not gonna, I'm still not going to name it. You can uh, you can use your own Googling to find it. Um, but that's a really, really funny uh, programme. And there's a very good anecdote about <laughs> about how tim key does life so listen out for that um that's all of that stuff in email me info at comedianscomedian.com if you'd like to talk to me but m i tell you what would be more useful for me because uh, obviously the email thing is if you're part of the angels the secret society of angels you email me with the subject line angels if you are a small to mid-term gig promoter it's a self-selecting group and you would like to help me out with a little uh, intriguing proposition. This isn't just me uh, blagging my way into your clubs, but uh, I've got a little plan. And a, a few people have been in touch. I really appreciate that. If you are 
someone who fits that description. And listen, thank you to a couple of people, Jeff and Martin and someone else, who emailed me and said, hey, I'll help. I'm not a promoter, but there's a pub near me and I'm sure they could be convinced to do a gig. That's really kind of you, but that's not what I'm after at this stage. If you run your own gig and you know what you're doing and you've got a bit of experience of a couple of years at least of running a gig, get in touch with me, info at comedianscomedian.com with the subject line angels and uh, I will expound further on my secret plan. Thanks to everyone that's done that. If you just like to talk about podcast stuff, you can join the Facebook Comedians Comedian group. It's a really good way of asking me questions for forthcoming guests. Uh, I try to ask those questions. When I ask them, I try to credit them. I mean, a lot of people, I'll be honest, some people were in the recent Russell Howard interview. Oh, my God, it might be the best one we've ever done. Um... Some people asked questions that I, I, I haven't credited because I'd kind of already thought of them because they were sort of, I'm not going to say obvious, but they were, it's the ones that I think, oh, oh, now that is a good angle. Those are the ones that I'm going to uh, read out in your voice and credit. So if you would like to be part of that process and like to be kept abreast and contact me uh, and have, have sort of contact with me and the rest of the burgeoning comedians, comedian community, I'm not going to call it the com community. Thousands will, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, then you can join the Facebook group. It's a closed group, so you apply, and then I bloody well add you when I get round to it. So you can do that. You can, of course, tweet me at ComComPod, and you can follow my own Twitter, at Stu Goldsmith. I occasionally ask for advice about how to lay a lino floor. It's not the world's funniest comedian's uh, uh, Twitter handle, but, um, you know... Christ, don't I do enough? <laughs> so the tour is, concludes at the Welsh Festival this weekend, so no more blurb on that. I will start pummeling you about Edinburgh, but maybe I'll give you a month off before I do that. And uh, if you hear of anyone who's going to be at the Edinburgh Festival who you, are, who you are particularly excited about being there and you would like me to try and nab for the podcast, I won't be doing live shows this year, but I will be doing some uh, non-live recordings around my flat wherever I can clear it out of babies. Um, so again, the Facebook group, Join the group and you can suggest uh, things for that. You can suggest things. People, humans, you know. You remember those uh, walking, cluttering things. Um, that's all of the chat for now. I think... Yes, last thing. Someone uh, was trying to blag their way. Okay, so this is a lady called Rachel. I, I won't tell you any of the other names, uh, but... Oh, no, I can. This is a lady called Rachel, and she works at the Angel Comedy Night. This is Barry Ferns' Comedy Night. He has absolutely mastered the free model. Um, mastered in that it's an open spot gig, and it pays for itself. It pays a headliner, I believe... But the point is, there is a queue round the block. You've got to respect someone who gets their punters to queue round the block, thus making everyone nearby realise something great's happening. Nice work, Barry Ferns. Uh, he runs the brilliant Angel Comedy Club at the Camden Head in Angel. That's one of the two Camden Heads, confusingly, in, uh, in Central East London. And... I love it. It's a great gig. He's a good open spot guy. He'll have, sorry, Barry, they're all going to go for you now. Um, but also he has really, he's very uh, good at uh, giving room to people who you need to try things for, you know, pre TV shows and stuff like that. It, it's a really good night and he's doing it exactly right. He also runs his own cheeky comedy awards and you've got to respect that too. So hello, Barry. However, Rachel, who works there, said this. This is the point of this anecdote. I'm not, I'm not taking money for this plug, but I might wave a bucket at him. Um, Rachel says, someone who was, she's, at the end of an email she sent me, also, someone who was trying to blag his way into a completely full angel comedy night tonight tried a final tack of saying, yeah, but I'm an act, look, 
and by way of proof showed me a ComComPod episode on his phone. God love you, everyone involved in that story. Thank you. Remember, the Comedians Comedian podcast is not a uh, passport or shibboleth of proof that you're an actual comedian in much the same way as it is not a substitute for getting on with writing jokes. Jump to it after you've finished listening to the brilliant Abigail Shemak. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's something really... Uh, uh, invigorating about falling or flying yeah entirely at your own uh, because of your own work what was I going to ask um, you were asking if I belonged in yeah a sense that you belong on stage I think if, if you're coming to I, I came from a performance, kind of background, performance background so yeah. as far as being on stage I definitely felt like I belonged there how did the um, other? Did, did you experience any resistance from the other act? You know, you know, and I don't know if this happens in the states, but there is a sense, I guess, in the UK that I've noticed where people who are stand-up comics will kind of go, "Oh, this 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 one's another actor." Well, you know, an actor having a bash. We were all open micers, so there wasn't there wasn't a big divide as far as um, um, who's a real comic and who's not. I didn't feel that. But at this specific open mic, which I didn't know that night, but I kind of learned um, later on, there was a group of guys, Mike being one of them, who would sit at the back of the room, and they were literally the cool guys, and you just wanted to make that back of the room laugh, like you do now. And uh, and they were, they were kind of... I... They were really mean to a lot of people. They were never mean to me, and I don't know why. But they were that specific group when I started. Where they'd been going a few years longer than me. They were getting booked on uh, bar shows in New York, which are you guys would consider new material nights, but we call them shows. Um, and they were uh, they were just kind of bullies and mean but really fucking good. So you wanted to impress them and you wanted them to like you. That's a really interesting dynamic, isn't it? Because I, I remember there's, um, who was it? Was it, was it John Lloyd? Someone's released a book recently of the, the, the lessons they've learned from uh, producing TV comedy. And one of the ones that really stuck in my mind was if the crew are laughing at something, take it out. 
Do you oh, know what really? I mean? and yeah. I, yeah, and I, it really, and then there was a sort of an explanation about it. I'll try and dig out the source material for the show notes. But um, uh, that idea that if you're playing to the back of the room, you're in the wrong game. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I, but I think we all, we, of course, everyone you wants want, to You want to play to the, the back of the room, but you don't want to play to the back yeah. of the room. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of your, your sort of, uh, you've got a hunger for that, but mm-hmm. you need to kind of rise above it. And it's interesting you say just about that dynamic in the room that they were kind of bullies and they were kind of mean. Well, again, you got to interview. I'm just going to, all I'm going to do is plug Mike Lawrence this whole time. But he, uh, I remember when we were starting out, him talking about the fact that he actually got people to quit. And he was, at that time in his life, I'm sure he has a different feeling now, but he was actually kind of proud of it because they weren't good. But it's kind of like, well, none of us really are that first, Mm. you know? But he was, uh, there was a crew of them that weren't, weren't nice. And they weren't ever mean to me. They weren't Why do you think, you said you didn't know why that was. Have you got any inkling as to why that was? Uh, not really, no. Um, I really don't know. Was it to Other do with than, your, your material or the way you held yourself backstage? Maybe. I mean, I don't, I mean, maybe there were things. I've also been someone who really doesn't listen to a lot of gossip about themselves. I love other people's gossip. But they might have been saying things behind my back and I just didn't know about it. But they were never, um mean to my face i don't know if it's because i at the time like i started stand up i was still doing a lot of acting so i was like in a play so i was i wasn't really like working in the industry but i was like doing performing stuff on a on a different level so i don't know if they respected that or maybe they disrespected that i don't know but i i have no idea what's the what's the what does it feel like being an open micer in the States? Oh, it's awful. I mean, it's great. Uh, it, it's great when you're in it, but looking back, I'm like, I don't want to do that again. Um, because it's so hard, because you feel like you've earned your stripes, because it's... It's much difficult. harder to break through in... I'll talk about New York specifically, because I, I've, I started in New York, and I've gigged here, New York, and Australia... Uh, but I'm not familiar with the LA scene at all. I'm not really familiar with middle America scene. Um, but New York specifically, it's much harder to break through. Um, open mics are like two minutes long, four if you're fancy. Um, everyone's building to six. So at the end of the day, you say, How, what do you do with two minutes? You built six. Which, by the way, that's something that I'm pretty proud of myself. I built a couple hours as an open micer in New York. So doing two-minute open mics, I built an hour. Uh, it wasn't good, but I did it. Um, Is it. That's interesting. I've heard some. I've heard more than one American comics that I've uh, interviewed. Uh, for this podcast um, say that oh yeah in the States we know that uh, English guys or you know British men and women turn out uh, an hour every year yeah and you shouldn't because it's not good enough some people shouldn't some people should Um, I did my first narrative this year and I fucking hated it I'll never do that again I hated it hated it this was post-coital confessions post-coital confessions yeah and um, I will and I'm uh, 
you know, when comedy's done really well, it's beautiful. But if I have to sit through another Edinburgh narrative where at the end the comic goes, my point is, you know, be who you want to be and follow your dreams. Really? Is that your message, Edinburgh stand-up comedian? Does anyone really do that? Yes. Any, do, do, really, you've seen shows with Yeah, I've seen, I've seen more than one. I, may not, I feel like that's a cliche that I assume exists without being able to name a single example. I can, I can name... Uh, at least one off, but I won't because okay. I'm on a mic and that's mean. Be- and everyone's doing the best they can, so I shouldn't be such a douchebag. But uh, or my parents didn't support support my decision, but I did it anyways. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> Let's talk about you assembling your hour yeah. in two minute bursts. How's that even possible? Um. Well, it was all just jokes. I didn't know anything about, like, what's your show about? Because all stand-up albums in the States, with the exception of Mike Birbiglia, are are jokes. There's no storyline. So, um, so I was just telling jokes. And the first year I went, I did rent out a studio and would talk that hour out in, f- in front of a friend. Uh, okay. Just in a studio, which I've never done since. And was, and it, was it successful? Was it useful? Or have you never useful. done it again because what? Because it was I, I just, not I've, enjoyable? It's not enjoyable. It's horrible, uh, man, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> I guess I did do it this year. Gavin Inns uh, directed me, so I, I guess I did it with him. But I did it with her every day. I did it like, or did I do it five days in a row? Or maybe just once a week. I can't remember now. And this is, are you writing, are you doing the same script five days in a row? Or are you just talking to her about what's on your mind? Exactly what's that I process? was doing the script and making changes. So I was going to open mics and telling jokes and then coming back and, and making the revisions with her. Going um, to open mics and telling jokes for two minutes? Mm-hmm. And then revising you can a two-minute section? You can do four, well, I don't know if... You can do four and five minute mics sometimes, but the ones you just rock up to, sure, they're all two minute mics. Okay. And what I will say, um, it's harder to make, break through in New York. There's some amazing comedians on just the open mic in kind of alternative comedy bar circuit that that aren't getting paid gigs that are phenomenal, and uh, they just haven't figured out how to break it yet. Whereas here. I know the comedy bubble is burst, and I know you can't make as much money as you used to, but it is easier to make a living here than it is in New York as a comic, and uh, it is easier to be mediocre here and make a living than it is in New York. And I'm not quite sure. I, maybe because the country's smaller, and so you can travel the country where you can't really do that in the States. Sure. I guess if you're in New York, you're in New York. Yeah. I mean, you can go up and down the East Coast if you have a friend with a car, uh, or you can take the buses, but it's a lot harder there. Yeah, I'm just envisaging all of the comics I know in Britain if we were all confined to the M25. I just wonder how the landscape would be different in terms of just the number of people doing it, the intake of people. Mm. It's interesting. I think um, there's definitely, you're very proud of New York and of having it being harder there yeah. and it's harder to get by and it's harder to break through and yet you're over here yeah are you over here permanently uh i will be here as long as they have me okay uh, so but, you but you'd like to stay yeah 
So what? Well, talk to me about that. That New. It's like you. You said earlier on that New York is kind of tougher, and you're glad you've done it, but you don't want to go back. Yeah. No, I don't. If I have to go back, I'll be really upset. Uh, well, I don't want to go and, back. And you're saying For the good- reasons why it's made me good is why I don't want to be there anymore. Um, I I got to a point with New York where I was doing open mics and I was getting booked on like good alt or bar shows, mm-hmm. but. Uh, the industry side of things didn't really either care about me or know about me. I'm not sure which one. And friends were starting to pass me and get better things, which they totally deserve and they worked hard for. But that was hard for me to watch. And instead of being proactive, I started to get upset and kind of bitter. So I just left. Because I needed to change something about what I was doing, and the it's the best way to shake things up and get yourself out of bad habits is just to move to a different location. And here I had to put myself out there in a different way because I didn't have a friend group that uh, was just... There's one place in New York called the Creek in the Cave that everyone just hung out at. So if I had nothing to do, if I didn't have a show in New York, I would just go hang out at the Creek, which I don't think you guys really have that here. You don't have a clubhouse. It wasn't just a club. It was like a proper clubhouse where we'd all hang out. So when I first showed up here, I was like, where does everyone go? It's like, home. And I was like, what what do you mean you go home? Like, I have to actually make plans to hang out with people here, which Mm. is very strange. Um, we would absolutely benefit from a clubhouse. I feel like we would burn it down within a week. But <laughs> you know what I mean, I, I mean, the uh, idea. ours is held together by plywood and bacon grease, and we haven't <laughs> burned it down yet. So it's a it's a really amazing place. The woman who runs it, Rebecca Trent, uh, lets comedians put shows on there for free. She has a black box theater. Let's just do whatever we want. If we want to charge for our show, wonderful. She doesn't take a cut from it. Um, and I mean, she literally lets us do anything we want in there. Um, like, cause I eat fire and stuff like that. And I had a show called Apple Goliath's Bazaar Bazaar. And I asked her, I was like, oh, can we have fire and stuff on stage? And she's like, just don't get it close to the curtains. It's literally made of plywood, the stages. <laughs> no place in London would let me do that. I want to stick with this, this idea of you frustrated and going, right, I'm going to move to a different country, yeah. not just city. Because that frustration of seeing people overtake you. Yeah. Like, we're all familiar with that. Yeah. Everyone's familiar with that. Even the people doing the overtaking are being overtaken faster and harder by the people they're freaking yeah. out about. Um, and it seems to me that if you've only been going six years, that's quite... When did you move over here? I moved here last year, 2014. Okay. Oh, because I've seen you at Edinburgh's in previous years, but you so, hadn't Well, you that's hadn't another reason why moved. I decided to move here was I was putting all this energy into Edinburgh. Mm. And uh, not really reaping the rewards because no one gives a shit if you do Edinburgh in the States. Like, they really don't care. Um, It must be such a crazy perspective to see how incredibly focused on Edinburgh everyone in the UK is. And then you walk away and you go, oh, this is madness. It's like when you talk to an Australian comic and they go, sorry, I I don't make money from this festival. Why would I do it then? Yeah. I I don't know. It's... I mean, it's it's really... um, it's sorry I've been up since eight which is so early for me (laughs) um but yeah so and it got to a point where I would um do my show in Edinburgh and people would come up 
to me, be like, oh, can you come and play my club in Shire? And I'd be like, oh, I'm based in New York. And they'd be like, never mind. And mm. of course, because they're not going to fly someone over from New York to play their, you know, small town club. But that was so exciting for me that someone was asking me to do their club. So I just moved to the place where I was being asked to do clubs. I'm really... I had I had a start. I did have a base here, yeah. but it was founded in Edinburgh. Whereas if I had moved to Chicago or, or L.A., I would be starting over. Yes. And because I came from New York, I kind of maybe made it sound like I was a working comedian a little more than I actually yes, was. Yes, yeah, well, canny, like I yeah. said, shrewd. So, like, when people would be like, you play Gotham? I'm like, I've played Gotham. I don't want to brag or nothing. Did the bringer. Um, <laughs> okay. But I wasn't passed in any of the clubs. Also, because it's so hard to break through in New York, people are a lot more precious about the information they have. So when I moved here... Everyone was happy to help me be like, do you play this club? You should email that person. Let me get you their email. Tim sure. Rincow sent me three pages worth of bookers. Good lad. Um, and I was just like, oh, this, this is gold. This is gold. Whereas like uh, in New York, Caroline's on Broadway yeah. has this uh, series called a breakout series, which is such a cool thing where on like a Monday or Tuesday, they'll let an up and coming comic headline it. And it's it's a big deal. It's a big rite of passage to get a breakout. And you get to program it. So you get to pick your opener and your middler and okay. you headline That's it. A great you get, idea. Yeah, you get to so you get all your friends to like host it and all that. And my buddy Mateo uh got a breakout series, so he headlined it and he asked me to be one of the spots on it. And he was already passed at the club and I was like, Oh, do you could I you have so and so's email. Could I maybe could I maybe get it from you so I can just let her know that I'm coming to the club that maybe she'll watch me and maybe I could get past it because I was gonna literally be in the club like I was performing on the stage and he was really cagey about giving it to me because he didn't he didn't want her to know that he got it from me and then he finally gave it to me like I I kind of had a strong arm him for the information but then he really asked me not to email her until after the show because he was afraid that he would get in trouble for giving out her information sure. and and so i didn't and i mean she never got back to me because you know it's um which and i'm not i'm not saying that that's his fault he had just no, got but it's he had just got passed at a club it is a very prestigious club and when i say passed at doing like 10 minutes unpaid spots there mm-hmm. that's passed for us and um but he was just getting into this club so he didn't want to do anything to jeopardize sure. that relationship it's, just, it's, it's it's symptomatic of how incredibly different the culture is yeah so is do you have a fear then that if it's tougher out there and that's where you earn your stripes and then you come here and people are nice to you and you can gig more and go for it, do you worry that if you go back there, you'll be soft? I was back uh, in June and it was fine. Um, I, it, I was nervous getting back on those stages. Not so much that uh, I wasn't as good, but that I might have gotten too mainstream. Because now I'll play like, you know, Jonglers and Just a Tonic and stuff like that where you have to perform for regular paying people and it isn't a bunch of hipsters drinking $2 PBR. It's a completely different audience. Um, But yeah, I did fine. Um, So no, I'm not worried. 
I do have to make sure, and this is one reason why I hated doing this specific hour. I didn't hate it until I got halfway through Edinburgh, and then I was like, this is shit. Um, is that I don't tell stories where the punchline is in t- two minutes. I'm not that, I'm not strong enough as a comic. Like Reginald D. Hunter can do it, I think. How do you mean? Uh, Where where you you just tell that it's too long without funny to get to to one punchline. That's, but, but you have to say it because it's part of the narrative. Um, I felt like doing a narrative was really restraining. What? So let's look at the Edinburgh shows that you've done. What hour number was this? It's number four, five, six. six. Okay. But that being said, um, the first three hours built to the third hour. So it wasn't like every year was completely new material. Okay. My third year on the free fringe was fucking banging because it took me three years to write that show. And, and would you recommend to newer acts, to people who've only been going a year, would you recommend that experience of doing an hour that you did? I would uh, and I wouldn't. It uh, depends what you want out of out of your situation if you just want to gig and get good then yeah uh have flyers made don't even worry about a press release uh don't even worry about reviews like literally don't like don't worry about them and just get people in and throw shit at the wall and see what happens the with the opportunities that edinburgh can offer in the chasing chasing the dragon that is the newcomer award and the five star review and stuff like that i i don't think it's appropriate for new acts to like some some people are bitching about getting a bad review from bennett and i'm like how long have you been going it's like two years it's like well yeah you're probably not that good yet and or you haven't figured it all out yet so maybe you you know, didn't deserve a good review yet. You might, but putting, uh, getting sucked into the industry side of it early on, maybe not a good thing. Just going to do comedy, why not? And do you think, what do you think of the, the change in the culture that that creates in stand-up in the UK if everyone because I mean, we were talking before we started recording about what's it going to look like in five years. I've seen comedy change dramatically from when I started. And then five years ago, it was different again. And now it's different again. Yeah. And I'm, I'd be fascinated to know what it's going to look like in the next five, 10, 15 years. Are we going to see a situation whereby someone starts gigging and goes, right, I'm immediately going to do a podcast and I'm immediately going to do an hour and I'm immediately going to... Do you know what I mean? Just kind of put themselves out there. There'll be so I much, mean, so much volume of stuff. Yeah, podcasts and Twitter accounts are the websites and business cards of today. You know what I mean? Like right when I started, I, I thought I needed a business card because who the fuck? Why? You know, <laughs> in a website, these aren't important. Um, if you have them, fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. But... Uh, if if you start creating content early, it's not going to be your best work. If you start creating content early, you might learn quicker than if you play it safe and hold back. Yeah. I don't if I hadn't gone to Edinburgh in that first year or those first few years and pushed myself to write like that, I would not be the comic I am now. Um and whether that's good or bad, I don't know. 
Edelman and I have been going the same amount of time in the same industry and he did his hour in one, you know, the newcomer award uh, for a great show, but he took his time to write it, whereas I was doing, quite frankly, mediocre work for a couple years, but learning learning how to do it to make a good show. Yeah, and there's no right answer, is yeah. there? And no one checks it off at the end of your life and goes, yep, you did or didn't do it correctly. Yeah. You have no idea. Yeah, no, I mean, it just, it depends... I guess it depends what you want out of it. I, it. Once you go to Edinburgh, it's hard not to get sucked into the drama because I know this year I was like, I don't care about reviews. And then by the end of it, I really cared about reviews. Um, so so what, what made you try a narrative for this year's show? Um, I've just never really done one and I wanted to try it. And because I was living over here, I knew it would be a lot easier to write one because... I mean, people are starting to preview now. You're previewing now. You have mm. one coming up. I did one two weeks oh, ago. Oh, you did yeah. one two weeks ago. Sorry. Um, it was, I mean, I'm not going to say it was terrible. I certainly came away from it. What it reminded me of was the bit when you're painting. If you're painting something in uh, oils, then the first thing you do is you, uh, what's it called? Ibosh, I think, mm. where you, you just kind of cover the canvas with color yeah and you go right okay now that's the background i'm going to paint on so it wasn't terrible thank you to everyone that came (laughs) but i did i think i finished the show by saying please do come back and see this in a year when it exists yeah you know it's that i'm at that stage yeah um but so i knew i would be in a situation where i could approach mark rothman or lucy dancer and be like hey i need your space for an hour uh could I have it for an hour monthly? And they'd be like, yeah, or no, because 47 other people want mm-hmm. it. Um, but I knew it would be possible to build that here where it's, again, it's harder in New York. It's harder to get a stage for an hour. Um, so I, so that's why I tried to do it. And what went wrong? I'm not saying that it went, I mean, you, you said you wouldn't do it again. I wouldn't do it again. So uh, why, well, why here, not? Let's, let's try and get a bit forensic about this. I Specifically did, what went I did the show on my birthday uh, just this past November, which I'm so glad I did because it made me love the show again. But I picked what I was going to write about in November, and then I wasn't able... I, I started with a grand idea, like a point I wanted to get across. And I had a teacher in college in creative writing that said never write with a uh, social agenda, which I, I kind of agree with, although everyone I talk to disagrees with me. But I think it shows through when you're just comedy that's like really funny. And then you're like, yeah, but my point is it, it can derail the, the funny. And that's what I kept doing to myself. Okay. And then... In this, it, it, previously or in this show? In this show. Okay. In what the, was the social point you were trying to make? Can you tell us? Oh, it? fuck. I don't even know anymore. So uh, the end of the show. <laughs> I Thank you for being so honest about it because there will be a lot of people who've been through similar Edinburgh experiences yeah. of having less than their favorite work. I was thinking of the Susan Kalman podcast that I did with yeah. her when she was talking about how she had been encouraged to go up and do stand-up in 10-minute sections yeah. so it was TV-ready and how much she hated that experience. You know, so th- I just want to thank you for just kind of going, oh, God, I don't even know anymore. People listening to this will be like, yeah, thank you for admitting that. <laughs> yeah. I, I listened to that uh, podcast with Susan and that was the first show I've ever seen her do. Like yeah. that. I was like, I remember 
remember that show? It was amazing. Yeah. And for her to go like, I hated that yeah. show. I was like, oh, that's what made me a Calman fan. Um, so it was really interesting to listen to. But the the way the show ends, I I dated someone, a straight man who liked to be, who was attracted to transgendered women. Uh, and so the point was something like sexuality is fluid and no big deal, uh, which I just summed it all up in a, you don't need to write an hour about it, do you? Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just, I, I couldn't do it eloquently. I, I, it was, I, I'm not someone who's ever tackled big social uh, issues. I guess the thing is, I, I wanted to deal with uh, the perception of uh, gender norms in uh, the current client climate, excuse me, and uh, I, I'm I wasn't and am not at a place to handle it. If I had two years, maybe I could have done it to a place where I was comfortable with. But the reason why I didn't like it was there were times I was in a room in the Guild of Balloon. Uh, I was in the balcony. It was a very hot room. Uh, I'll n- never perform in that room again. Uh, listen, I never will. Um, so if Karen puts me in it, I won't do it. But uh, I, there were nights where the show, like people were so hot or they were tired or it was just hard to extract what I wanted out of them. And instead of being able to just drop the piece and be like, let's go into you guys for a little bit to to open this up because right now everyone's just a little uncomfortable. It's like, I can't stop for more than two minutes because I have to get through A, B, C, D, and E to make F make sense. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't like that. That's what I really didn't like about it. And there were parts of it that were really funny and there were parts of it that were only sometimes funny and that's not funny um if it only works in front of uh certain people at a certain time it's not really that funny um and then when i had to go back to new york in june to renew my visa and i got stuck there for an extra week because my visa got lost in the mail which is very stressful which by the way uh, listeners, your visa is a sticker that goes in your passport, and that's why I couldn't leave the country. Because everyone kept Facebooking me and be like, I know what you should do. You should just come back to London and then have your visa mailed to you. I'm like, you didn't think I thought about that. So I wound up being stuck in New York for an extra seven days. And the first thing I did when I got back here was I went on stage and talked about it for 10 minutes. And I had so much fun talking about it. And if I hadn't had to do this whole hour that was built in eh, feelings, I would have immediately pulled out 10 minutes of that show and put that story of being stuck in New York for a week. Did you not feel like you had license to do that? Even having made that decision, even having said on the literature, this is what the stuff, this is what the show is about. There was no room. There was nothing I could, I felt at the time there was nothing I could take out to... Maybe I could have put it at the beginning. Um, but you had to, you, you had kind of created a cage for yourself whereby yeah. you needed to say, I mean, I've yeah. absolutely been in that cage myself. I'm sure I, lots of people listening to this have. I mean, maybe looking back, if I had, if I'd really gone back and kind of tore it apart, 
maybe I could have figured out how to put it in, but I mean, I'm talking, I got back the second week of July, so to rip it apart then seemed too late. And if you were doing a more kind of American style show or just this is all the funniest stuff from this year, you'd have absolutely been able to go, oh, this bit's funnier than my bit about Dr. Pepper, so I'll bin that and put this in. Yeah. Yeah. I would have totally done it. I think it's really interesting as well what you said about wanting to... I'm sure loads of us have felt like this. Wanting to talk about social issues Mm -hmm. and not feeling like... Or political issues, perhaps. And not feeling like you have the nuance or the articulation mm-hmm. to be able to do it like I'm, i i think it's september or october every year i go right i'm going to start thinking what do i actually care about what's what's pissing me off yeah and i'll make a list of things i really want to tackle this and i really want to tackle yeah. this and then by the end of the by the time the show is made i'll look back at that list and go nope couldn't make that funny yeah. couldn't make that funny couldn't make that funny maybe i'm just someone that works in a different way well yeah because that's not really how i write like going back to I, the reason why, I, now that I remember this, the reason, one reason why I really wanted to write a narrative was I saw Mike Birbiglia's, uh, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Have you seen it? It's yeah, amazing. Yeah, and I was like, I want to do that. And I couldn't. Um, so, but that's how he writes. He writes in stories. That's how, how his mind works. Whereas for me, something will happen to me. Not in the world, to me, and it bangs around my head for about two weeks, and then I'll be like, oh, maybe I should talk about that on stage. Mm. You know? Do you, do you, I, I feel the same, but I worry sometimes that I am led in that case by random chance rather than being able to cultivate. Do you know what I mean? Is, is that something you aspire to, to, yeah, to changing well, so that 10 years from now you're someone who can go, I want to talk about gender issues? And write some funny shit about gender issues. Well, talking about something that happened to me that has then made me talk about gender issues, which I didn't mean for it. So I want to talk about gender issues. If I keep that in the back of my head and look at, because I, I do autobiographical comedy. So also I thought, I was like, the narrative will work. I talk about myself all the time. Um, but my boyfriend and I went into a shoe shop and he talked me into buying a pair of shoes. And I bought them, and then he was like, great, we're finally doing something about this wardrobe of yours. This is a a joke that I'm working on on stage. And the thing is, is he kind of wants to make me over. And in a relationship, it's always the girl who fixes the guy. It's Mm. never the guy who Mm. fixes the girl. But in how people deal with that, like when I tell people, so I want to be slimmer than I am right now. And he's very encouraging about that to a point where I'm like, but can't you just say I'm pretty as I am? Yeah. Uh, but so when I when I tell people like, oh, you know, uh, I'd like to lose some weight. So Tom has got this really good idea where like I eat fifteen hundred calories a day, and this is what I should eat. And people are like, he can't tell you how to eat, you know. Whereas if if I was telling him what to eat and making him go to yoga all the time, people would be like, good for you. So that's. Yeah. Uh, and that is the whole premise of the joke. So no one listening, take that. That's mine. Um, but so that's allowing me to talk about gender issues in the kind of in the in the frame of something that's happened to you. In the yeah. frame of something that's okay. happened to me, instead of being like, "All right, the way we treat each other, we should make that better." Right? 
because I think I I find it hard to make political issues funny. I I do. I know other people are really good at it. So for me to start with the issue and then try to make the issue funny doesn't doesn't work for me right now. So you're a very overt very like a lot of your shows like almost all of your publicity photos are like you in bed with several people or yeah. you know you in they're bed all or, sexy. they're all kind of sexy or me in bed they're all yeah. me in bed <laughs> <laughs> um, and that when you're talking about something really personal mm-hmm. that you that the method by which you talked about it was that you cloaked it in something else yeah. and that then became a bit a bit of your material that as you said was kind of remarkably strong yeah so i wonder is there what's the relationship between those things between being really out there and kind of flaunting your life stories and discussing your life stories in a a more concealed more subtle way do you see what i'm getting at yeah i mean that's the only one that's the only joke i have that's like that Mm -hmm. um and because it's such a buzzword um abortion i i didn't feel comfortable saying it on stage and i wrote it shortly after that all went down so i wasn't in a place mentally that i could like right now talking to you i'm very comfortable but this is probably the first time i've ever talked about it publicly um it if you've never had one they really send you through through a loop um it, I mean, it fucks with your hormones. The emotional uh, state that it puts you in is not good. So I wasn't really in a place to be like, yeah, check this out. Which it's also not a really like, it's not, a, in my opinion, it's not really a balls out topic. You know what I mean? Like I can unapologetically talk about being spit roasted because like, fuck you, I do what I want. But with something like that, it's a little more like, no, that was that was kind of, that was kind of scary. <laughs> and and isn't there? But what I'm getting at is, isn't there because there's less of the hey fuck you, I'm being spit roasted. Might that have something to do with why that bit was better received because you were being more honest? Yeah, maybe. Um yeah I guess um it was it's more honest, but it's also far more clever it's It's better written than other things that i've I've done that are honest you know um or or maybe maybe that because it's not you going out and being kind of in your face confessional, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like hitting there, them over the head with it. Yeah. I, yeah. I wonder if for someone who... Like, I find one of the hardest things in comedy is to sort of take responsibility for one's own life and go, this is actually honesty. Yeah. And I'm just interested in your thoughts on whether when you do the kind of, hey, guys, I'm being spit-roasted mm-hmm. material, whether that is you being emotionally honest or whether that is you being sensational. Um, I think in the midst of writing stuff like that, I don't think I ever thought of it as me being sensational. One thing that really does bug me is when people say to me specifically that I'm writing for shock value because I don't think I am. I, I literally am only writing what uh, bangs through my head. 
and everyone has sex. Like, everyone has sex. So, get the fuck over it. Um, but I will say that I'm... I was just talking to Ben Vanderveld about this. I do want to pull back from talking about my personal sex life for uh, two reasons. One, I am now with someone who has told me I can't uh, talk about our current sex life on stage, which is... Uh, so then, then I'm pulling from a backlog of info, you know, <laughs> which isn't as nearly as authentic. And and I imagine I could go read so many journals I wrote. I uh, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but when you say um, he's told me I can't, that's kind of we're not imagining he's being a fascist about this so much as saying it would really upset him if you discussed. Yeah, no, no, yeah. no. He's a far more person. Like he didn't, he didn't forbid me to do it, but we had a discussion where he, he, he knows the subjects I talk about. And he was just like, I'm a very private person. Yeah. And other than the people that I've been with, none of my family know about, my personal sex life or anything like that whereas part of me is as a comedian I'm like you know I could talk about it and you know, people you'd be surprised how people just don't think any of it's true like I could just talk, but um, one to respect his wishes and when I first started Rick Overton who's an LA comic who's been going oh he, he's another one you should do you know Rick I've heard his name but uh, I don't actually oh, know he's, I have only talked to him maybe four times in my life and I've never loved someone so much I've talked to so little, but he, when I first started that first hour he came to, which I was like so nervous because he's like a real life comedian. Um, and afterwards he told me he was that he thought I was funny. And I remember this when I was 23, he's like, but you can't talk about your sex life forever. That won't sustain. And I do think that's true. And I don't know if that means that I'm going to start talking about sex in a more worldly situation or if I'm just going to start talking about other things that have happened to me but and I also need to in order to step forward as a comic and to become a better writer I need to stop relying on that stuff because as much as I'm like it's not I don't rely on it for shock value it's like well let me prove that by doing something else that's equally good well, here here's my thing about dirty humor, and and I I once I once wrote a correspondence piece about it. If I'm short, I'm not bragging, um, but it is harder to do than people think it is, and because if you write a joke about being on the on the tube that bombs. People are just kind of bored. If you write a joke about like a horrific one night stand where you accidentally like threw up on a guy's dick, I, I I've never done that, but <laughs> um, uh, and it goes bad. People are horrified and they don't like you anymore. So the stakes are a lot higher. Um, and I mean, there are easy ways to talk about it and there are trope ways to talk about it, but it is like any other subject. You know what I mean? Um, there are really inventive ways to talk about public transit and there's a really boring, like, oh, the tubes, you know, how it's always late. Yeah, I know. Um, so it, it, it's what bugs me is people kind of look at it like, oh, it's easy and it's not. 
it's I don't think it's as easy as everyone thinks it is because you can really alienate a crowd with it. Um, and and it becomes more than they're just bored or you're just okay. They really don't like what you're putting them through. But I think people, I, I, my impression is that people consider dirty humor easier because you're definitely going to get some audible reaction. Do you know what I mean? It's like you're going to get by... It, or. No, not even quite that. It, it might be that instead people see it as easier because if you say a rude word, that gets a shock laugh. Yeah, but if you delve deeper into the subject and start talking about uh, either your personal experiences or um, or like kind of the nitty gritty of it, then it's not easy. Well, like I said, if you say a rude word people will laugh okay if you say if you make the joke oh you know uh currency joke basically which everyone has one about the american dollar versus the british pound people laugh it's not an original joke everyone fucking has that joke you know if you make a joke about the american education system i'm done with you as a person but uh uh, oh, the one, the one that it. comes up for me a lot is uh, drinking uh, tolerance in the U. You yeah. know, in America, I'm an alcoholic. Dot dot dot. Yeah. yeah, that that whole. I mean, those are those are really simple premises that uh, everyone has a version of that, or everyone can riff a version of that pretty easily. But if you're talking about your personal sexual experiences or beliefs, it's it is trickier, and I feel like people don't um, don't take that into account. Like, if you were to make a joke about the fact that only, what is it, 17% of Americans have passports? Something really low like that. I was talking to someone about this before, and people were like, oh, ridiculous, how uncultured are they? Let's think about a passport. How much does a passport cost, do you know? Costs over a hundred dollars. You got a family of four. That's four hundred dollars. You're gonna take them to London, are you? Really? Cost seven hundred dollars a ticket to go on vacation to London. No, you don't spend that kind of money when you're a family in America to take them on vacation. You go to Gatlinburg and you take them on it on a few roller coaster rides. Like it's, people think it's a thing about being uncultured. Where I genuinely think it has more to do with the financial. Yeah, and, and the fact that it's a passport is something you need much more of in the UK because there's uh, loads and loads of countries yeah. nearby a short hop away which yeah. there aren't in the states, and we don't have budget airlines. Yeah, like, yeah, there's right. No, like in within America, we don't have budget airlines. So have you got a bit on this? Have you got a bit that says I'm working you know, on it? I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm working on it. Uh, but but yeah, so that to me that's a more interesting angle than no one has a passport because they're uncultured. It's like no one has a passport because it's financially unreasonable to own a passport. Like when liberal people bitch about that, I'm like, you're you're making fun of the poor. Because technically, when you think about it, you are. I mean, there are obviously um, well-to-do people without passports as well, but the majority of America is working class, so... You're just taking the piss out of working class people who can't afford $700 tickets to Europe or um, Canada or Mexico. It's still like $300 to get there. It's my opinion. (laughs) Okay, we've got to wrap up shortly. I've got a couple of curveball questions. Complete this sentence. You're not a comedian until you've... 
Um, well, you know, when are you a comedian? Um, I don't know. You're not a, a comedian at probably until you're gigging regularly. Um, and when I say gigging, I'm fine with the fact that people who are still performing for free or at an open mic level call themselves comedians. But if you're gigging once a week, you're not a comedian. If you're gigging in New York, it, that was another thing. There was a pressure to do 10 shows a week. It's easier to get around because it's a small little island, Manhattan, so it's easy to, to hop from show to show. But if you're not performing four times a week, what, what are you doing with your time? <laughs> so, yeah, you're not a comedian if you're not gigging regularly. Finally, what would you have on your comedy gravestone? I knew you were going to ask that. Well, um, I sort of didn't want to ask it because I knew you, that you'd yeah, know. You and what I like is you know you can interpret it anyway, and I just want an immediate answer, that's yeah. all. Well, the the thing that I like about Comedy Gravestone is it doesn't suggest that I died. It suggested that my comedy died. <laughs> so if it's if it's my comedy has died, then it's, hi, I've now opened a yoga studio. <laughs> and if it's me, then it's, thanks so much, had to run off to another gig. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, Abigail. Abby. Oh. A bomb. A bomb. <laughs> so, thank you to Abigailia. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me around your swanky pad. And uh, if you would like to track her down, you can do that by simply googling her unique uh, her unique first name, Abigailia. A B I G O L Abigail I. A-H. If I spell that right, you can work it out. Um, there we go. That's the downside of a uniquely Googleable made-up name. Uh, you aren't going to be quite sure. Presumably you'll get a, did you mean? Who knows? So uh, check out what Abigail is up to. She's got some stuff available to download. She's all over YouTube as well. And she has her, uh, she will be, I'm sure she'll be doing Edinburgh this year, of course. So get along there and check her out. Now, uh, that's all of that. Thank you to Johnny, whose surname I have not figured out yet how to pronounce. I'm going to go with Mounzer? Mounzer? I don't know. Um, but thank you to Johnny. Uh, Nathan, our regular uh, co-producer and editor of the show, is having a little break. So uh, Johnny is looking after us for the next few episodes. So thank you to Johnny for sorting that out. Thanks to Tom DL, who is helping me with some wonderfully arcane uh, MailChimp slash PayPal mailing list fields. I don't even know what those are, but he's certainly helping me with them. And thank you very much as well to Mark Fontaine from audiowrangler.co.uk, who has very helpfully uh, helped me clean up the break glass in case of emergency episode. We're so close, people. We're so close. Lots of really exciting stuff is going to be released in the next few weeks and months. We're going to finally get round to the break glass when it's so nearly finished. Um, that special episode, I've got Extra Life, my 2014 show, that is almost ready to go. Uh, we've got video and, well, audio and possibly video of the tour that concludes this weekend. Uh, and we've got some extra little treats besides. So keep them peeled. That concludes the podcast. Speak to you next week. So this, as regular listeners will know, hashtag horse, hashtag underscore horse, hashtag underscore underscore horse. Good God. Um... Regular listeners will know that this is where the waffle goes. I am creaking under the weight of the tour, the Welsh Festival, uh, the forthcoming podcast with Joe Lysett I have yet to start revising for. 
Um, that's going to be uh, you won't you won't hear this I'm sure till after the Welsh one but if you are there do come along to the Vortex on Sunday uh, early evening and see me interview brilliant Joe Lysett uh, and if you're listening to this and you can't make it to the Secret Welsh Festival then by all means Google him up and get prepped because that one will be released next week I hope um, so creaking under the weight of fatherhood and getting things done and tidying and travelling and doing as many hundred miles a week as I normally did plus the tour um, so what I'm saying is I don't have a huge amount to talk to you about today. We're not going to waffle on. I'm going to uh, take my little boy swimming. Uh, not that he knows. <laughs> I'm going to take him from his point of view, sort of briefly bobbing up and down. Mm, my legs are cold. Ah, uh, towels. That's what I'm going to take him. Um, so uh, as a result, I am going to skip off and do that now. I've had to re-record this several times for one another technical reason. So I don't know. I've just been noodling around, driving, gigging. Um, God. There's nothing to say. There's nothing to say. I'm too tired. Lots more stuff later. Oh, and listen, the Russell Howard one, it genuinely might be the best one ever. He's so experienced, has got an incredible perspective on things and is really open. And we had a big, long chat, like two hours and 45 minutes. I will divvy it up between the mailing list and uh, maybe an episode or two. Um... It, I'm so excited about it. And earlier that day, my God, I had Jinx Monsoon and Major Scales on the podcast. I've been trying to get a drag queen on for a long time. I was so pleased to nab Jinxie. Um, she has an incredible show at the Soho Theatre, which is on for the next two weeks, but I'm reliably informed it's sold out. Go and see if you can get returns. I enjoyed it enormously. Um, and we get into some RuPaul drag race nitty gritty. So uh, uh, check that out. Hashtag fishy. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll hashtag horsey. Hashtag fishy. None of this will mean anything to you unless you are a dedicated RuPaul Drag Race fan, as I'm sure all of you are, because I reffed it so highly 30-odd episodes ago. Enough. I'm going. Speak to you soon. <laughs> 